And uh, all right, as we continue worship, I want to look to the scripture now. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Let's uh, even, as a, it's a perfect segue from Pastor Wayman sharing to the word, let's begin with the word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony uh, that we received this morning from Pastor Wayman. We thank you, Lord, for your uh, mercy and grace in his life, for how you have uh, not only used, used him throughout his ministry as a pastor, but in his retirement years, you, you may, we might say, uh, Lord, he uses those same uh, gifts and talents to, to train up uh, pastors around the world. We thank you, Lord, that it is by your grace that you caused him to do this. We thank you how you provided for the, him and Auntie Helen and all that they need for, with regards to their support. We thank you and praise you for even allowing him to uh, be able to allow his heart to receive the surgery, that it was successful, and, and Lord, that uh, he was even able to hear to come here and share with us the not only what he's been doing, but the the truths and the lessons that he's been learning from you. And Father, we receive encouragement in this because uh, these are lessons that you would uh, teach us as well. Father, we pray for Pastor Wayman that you continue to guide and direct him and use him in the ministry wherever you would have him uh, for the future. And we pray that uh, as you would cause him to continue to be faithful to the task that he's been given by the TLI. And Lord, may you continue to build your kingdom through uh, his and Auntie Helen's faithfulness uh, to you. Lord, we th- thank you that we can come to your word now. And we pray as we look to the book of Isaiah, continue our study, that we would grow in our understanding of our need for Christ. Uh, show us Christ, Lord, from your word. Show us our need for Christ. Show us the, the dangers of sin and how easy we are deceived. Lord, may you uh, cause us to examine our lives, that we would always uh, be aware and of, and sensitive to sin in our lives, to put it to death so that our lives would not, may not be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Lord, we ask that your spirit would teach us now, uh, move among your people, Lord, speak to each one as they, as, uh, as wherever they are at, so that they would hear exactly what they need to hear from you, Lord, and cause your word to go forth and accomplish much in each, in our lives and the life of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 this morning. Let's listen to the word of God. I'll read Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. You can follow along in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. We read the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and a solemn assembly. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Thus says the word of God. As I was reading various commentaries in our preparation for this study, I came across one quote by one British biblical scholar. His name was J. Alec Mottier. And he wrote these words with regards to this text. He said, every religion has its necessary outward forms. And every religion is susceptible to the same danger of defining the reality in terms of this form. And that's, that's, I just love that quote. Wow, that's a great quote. So, uh, you have, if, you, if you think about that, and if you're kind of familiar with what that means, it's, it is an insightful observation and is a true observation for not only all religions, but for our Christian religion. When we think about outward forms of our faith, of our, of our religion as, as a Christian religion, uh, we could imagine, when we can even here, we can see several of it. The most visible forms of our faith include the weekly attendance of Sunday services, as we do uh, each week. Here we, we pray, we sing songs, we greet one another, we give offering, we listen to a sermon. And for some of us, we serve in a particular ministry uh, during our services. And Montier's warning is that we do not define our Christian faith by what we see done here. That when we think about, oh, our Christian faith is, oh, you, you go to services. Oh, oh, you listen to the word. You pray. You give offering. We, our tendency and even the world tends to define us by what we do outwardly. And it is a dangerous thing to think that a Christian who attends worship services weekly, praying, singing, greeting, giving, listening, and serving is automatically right with God. That if you do those things, if I see those in your life, oh, you must be right with God. And that would be a dangerous mistake to make. Perhaps you are right with God. But those outward forms of just attending church don't make that so. One can do all these things and not be right with God. And even more frightening so, may not be a Christian at all. Now, observance to outward forms without the inward reality of a right relationship with God is what we call hypocritical worship. And that's the theme of our passage this morning. Continuing in his introductory overview of the book, Isaiah writes the word of God, where the Lord now in this passage reproves Judah and the people of Jerusalem for her hypocritical worship. A worship that is outwardly observed, but inwardly in the relation with God is far from him. Today's passage challenges us as worshipers of God, as the people of God, to examine our own lives, to examine our hearts for whether we have or are practicing a form of hypocritical worship. Do we think that, oh, yes, because I go to church, I, I do all those things that we do on Sunday morning. Therefore, I'm right with God. 
Outward forms do not define the reality. Outward forms are the manifestations of the reality. But the outward forms can be faked as well. And so God in his word, as he reproves uh, Jerusalem and Ju- the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, he gives them two overall, two God-given instructions for hypocritical worshipers. That's what these people have become, the people of Judah. And I know, I hope that we are not hypocritical worshipers, but we could be. And if we are, then that's this word is for us, that it would awaken us, that it would shake us, but also that it would warn us that we would not fall into hypocritical worship because that's what we don't want to be. So let's take a look then at these two God-given instructions for us as we look at the passage this morning. Number one, we find a the rebuke of hypocritical worship in verses 10 through 15. In short, God states in these six verses that he rejects Israel or Judah's worship because their lives are characterized by rebellion and sin. Outwardly, they've done all the right things, but they're inwardly or in their life, their daily lives, they practice rebellion against God. Their hearts are far away from him. They are involved in sin. And as God rebukes the people of Judah, we learn six sobering truths about hypocritical worship. We learn what God has to say about hypocritical worship. And we want to cover these first, these six things that God has to say. First of all, Hypocritical worship is disobedience to the word of God that is defined by disobedience to the word of God. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Isaiah associates, as associates here, if you notice, Judah with these divinely desolated cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw them actually at the end of verse 9 that we looked at last week. But doing so reminds Judah of how close they are to destruction because Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So to be called Sodom and Gomorrah is a reminder that, hey, your destruction is coming soon. And God gives Judah and the people of Jerusalem two similar parallel commands. They are, hear the word of the Lord, and they are, give ear to the instruction of our God. The judgment that has come upon the Israelites, these Jewish, the people of Judah, is because they have not heard the word of the Lord. They have not given ear to the instruction of their God. So God calls them to obey. They should be obeying God, but they aren't. Instead, they rebelled against God. We saw that in verse 2. They've abandoned, despised, and turned away from God, according to back in verse 4. So God calls them back to his word. God calls them back to obeying the law that he had given them. And the lesson for us is that we can't worship God here on Sundays And then go out and live lives that disobey God the rest of the week. We can't come here and say, I'm going to observe all that God says about worship on Sundays, about serving, about praying, about listening to the Bible, and then go out there and disobey him with regards to those very same commands. That is hypocritical worship. And to say it mildly, mildly, God is not pleased with such worship. The next five truths bring home this point that God feels about hypocritical worship, or God thinks of hypocritical worship. And that is, we learn in verse 11 that hypocritical worship is worthless to God. Verse 11, God says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Now, we understand, especially if you know your Old Testament, that a significant part of Israel's worship was the sacrificial system. 
the offering of the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats, fat and fat of fattened cattle. Uh, these things they were called by Israel to offer as sacrifice. They would offer them on various occasions and different events in their daily lives. They offered not only the animals that are mentioned here, but as well as doves and produce and flour and oil, frankincense and more. So there was a variety of different elements to the sacrificial system of Israel. And these were a big part of their worship. They were all, and they're not bad, for they were all commanded by God in the law of Moses. But notice that God says, to them, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? It's not that there's anything wrong with the sacrificial system. God commanded, and the law is good. But when he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? See, though they've offered plenty of sacrifice, they've offered abundant uh, uh, animal sacrifices to God, God says, Judah's sacrifices, because they are hypocritical worship, they mean nothing to him. What are they to him? They're nothing. Not only that, What's more, they add nothing. He said, he says, I've had enough of your offerings. I've had enough. I don't want it anymore. They, they add nothing to this, to your worship. And then lastly, they do nothing. God takes no pleasure, he says, in their blessed sacrifice. When we offer worship to God, it is as an act of worship. It's that we want to please God. We want to glorify Him. God says, I'm not pleased. I'm not glorified when you offer those sacrifices that you've been bringing. He takes no pleasure in them. The Israelites had deluded themselves in thinking that if their sacrifices, just by the abundance of their sacrifices to God, would please him no matter how they live their life. But how they live their lives matter. God is considers hypocritical worship worthless. Thirdly, we also learn that hypocritical worship is an affront to God. An affront to God. In verse 12, he says, When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? God's word reminds Judah that their worship is first and foremost an appearance before him. He says, you come before me. He talks about my courts. You're entering the temple to worship me. It's not about you when you come to worship. It's about God. It's about him. It's about standing before him. And when we stand before him, we want to make sure that we appear right before him. The temple was where God's glory was made manifest in the Holy of Holies. Every time they go to the temple, they remember, oh, the Holy of Holies is there. Only our high priest could go in there. And only once a year. And only after he's made sure that he's right with God by offering the right sacrifices. Anybody else dies because the holiness of God is there in the presence of the temple. When Isaiah in chapter 6 saw God's... Uh, God's holiness, he immediately recognized his sin. But when the Israelites came before God's holy temple, they came with rebellious and unrepentant hearts. And God calls this a trampling of his courts. When we come in with sin, and we trample God's courts. You know, although we don't, we're not, we don't call, we're not called to worship in the temple. We're not, this, you know, this building is no more holy than the apartment building next door. But God calls the New Testament a temple that is our bodies. The church is really the temple of God. The people are the temple of God. And we, our bodies are a temple of God. When we live in disobedience to him, we trample his courts. Fourthly, not only is hypocritical worship an affront to God, but hypocritical worship is also an abomination to God. 
verse 13, God says, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. God intensifies here his rejection of hypocritical worship. He says, don't even bring your offerings any longer. Why, God, no, no, I, you know, we think we treat God like we treat human beings, you know. When you offend someone, you say, oh, if I just give them enough gifts, I give them enough money, I give them enough stuff, oh, they're going to like me. That's how the world operates. But no, not with God. You cannot give him enough to have your sins forgiven. It does not pardon our sins. It is an abomination to God when we bring our offerings and sacrifice to him, and yet we continue in life of sin. God says they're worthless. They do nothing for our lives. What's more, he says our incense, which was part of the prayers and the worship of God, he says that's an abomination to him. This word abomination is later used in Isaiah 44, verse 19, of, of idolatry, where incense is as loathsome to God, then, as idolatry is. God hates the worship of idols, and he hates it when we offer incense to him without a right heart. Outwardly, they worshiped God with, their, uh, with, it, with offerings and incense, but to God, they were a worthless and abomination. And what has been implied throughout these verses is now explicitly stated here at the end of verse 13. Why has he found this, their worship to be such an abomination? He says, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I cannot endure iniquity, sin, and your psalm assemblies. Don't come to me and be all solemn and act all holy and have sin in your life, is what God says. They do not belong together. Worship and wickedness don't fit. Incense and iniquity, abominations. When we worship the Lord, we must always examine our hearts for sin. When we come to God's church, when we come to God and we worship him, we must confess our sins. That's why often we practice and we start our time with prayer. It's a time for us to examine our hearts. Because none of us here have lived this whole life, this past week, without any sin, right? We've all had attitudes of sin, thoughts of sin, acts of sin. And we need to confess those to the Lord to be rightful with Him so that we can approach Him because as followers of Christ. Fifthly, we not only learn that hypocritical worship is an abomination, we learn that hypocritical worship is abhorred by God in verse 14. I hate your new moon and festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Similar to verse 13, God carries his description a bit further. The NAS translation reads, I hate, if you'll notice. But the Hebrew literally reads, my soul hates. God says, my soul hates your new moon festivals. And thus the, the new moon is basically the time when they would offer the sacrifices. And this hatred then is at the very center of his being. One commentator writes of this phrase that it is thus a, a hatred that is found in the inmost depth and to the utmost bounds of God's being. That is how much God hates and abhors hypocritical worship. It's become a burden to him. He has been bearing them for so long, God says. In fact, later on in Isaiah 43, 24, 43, chapter 43, verse 24, God says to Israel, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God's tired of that. God's tired of their sin. 
They just, as they continue in sin. And these are the people of God. God hates hypocritical worship from his people. And so should the people of God. Sixthly and lastly, then, we learn from God that in verse 15, that hypocritical worship is abandoned by God. It's abandoned. It's totally, completely rejected by God. Verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God refuses here to hear the prayers of hypocritical worshipers. Even if you multiply your prayers, God will not listen. And the reason? Because he says, your hands are covered with blood. Your hands are covered. Judah and Jerusalem, why will I not see? Because as you continue rebellion, your hands are covered with blood. Now, up to this point, we've known that the people of Judah were guilty of rebellion, of idolatry, sins against God himself. But here for the first time, God charges them with sin against other people, their neighbors. The phrase, the hands covered with blood, is a picture of violence against another. Later in the same chapter, verse 21, God condemns Jerusalem. He says, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Murderers now lodge in Jerusalem. And then in light of the verses that follow that verse, as well as there, as well as here, he's, God's, it is not just not general murder in general, but it's the murder of the helpless. It's the murder of those who really have no defense. The orphans, the widows, through the abuse and neglect of the people. There is God... There's an intentional irony here to God's judgment upon hypocritical worshipers. He says, just as they have abandoned the fellow people by not helping the the orphans and the widows, leading them to allowing them to die in in their in their hunger and their in their poverty. Says God says, I will abandon you. I won't hear you. I don't see you. Hopefully these words have impressed upon us, each of us, how much God hates hypocritical worship. God hates it. He abhors it. And as a, just for us to take a little time to think about this application, <clears throat> this is not just an Old Testament truth, but it's a New Testament truth as well. Jesus is our Lord and Savior's harshest words in the New Testament, are reserved for who? Unbelievers? No. At least those who would profess, well, they could have been unbelievers, but those who, his people, particularly the leaders of his people, the Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus repeatedly pronounces to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says eight times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you're hypocrites. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them out by saying, Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's so true. Maybe uh, if our neighbors just watched our lives, they, they would see us. They'd say, well, they'd see us walking out of our homes, dressed all nicely, uh, looking, you know, kind of, you know, put together. We combed our hair. Uh, we'd say, wow, this, that, there goes a nice-looking family, a, a good-looking couple. Oh, that must be an upright-standing man or woman. And look at how they go to church. And look at how, oh, man, the things that they are devoted to. 
Oh, these are wonderful things. They must be outstandingly righteous people. Yes. But that is nothing compared to how we live. What is inwardly in our hearts? Is our hearts full of hypocrisy and lawlessness? Do we, we need to examine our lives and we would not confuse our righteousness with what we do on Sunday mornings and how we look. We, are, we gather weekly here to worship God and appear righteous, certainly. And, it's, and in fact, it is a righteous thing to come and worship God. But we ask ourselves, what does your life look like out there? At, in your homes, at your workplace, at school? What does your Christian life look like? Is it even a visibly Christian life? Are you guided by the same principles that you would practice readily here? No, it's sometimes hard. In fact, I think as a new Christian, I found that one of the hardest things was to live out my Christian life in my home. So used to the, the sinful ways that I, I acted, I was um, you know, afraid to, to talk about Christ in my own family. But if we don't live what we speak here, out there, God calls that hypocritical worship. It's full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And if so, these words are a warning for us to change. It's a warning to change. We move on then to the second God-given principle or God-given instruction. And that's the remedy for hypocritical worship, the remedy for it. The opposite of hypocritical worship is sincere worship. And we learn two truths. First of all, sincere worship begins with cleansing and repentance. Verse 16, he says, God says, you are, your hands are covered with blood. So what's the solution? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Sin had corrupted Judah's worship. And so the remedy requires a cleansing and repentance from sin. And the first half of this verse describes cleansing. Second half, repentance. This cleansing and repentance, though, must come not from ourselves. Even though the, the call is to us, but it calls... It call, requires us turning to God because all forgiveness of sins, all turning from sins is by the power of God. God enables it. And in fact, and we're going to look at that next week in verse 18 and following. God says, come to me, reason with me. I'm going to wash away your sins and I'm going to remove your sins, though they're, scar- they're as scarlet. God is the one. He is the one whom we must turn to for forgiveness of sins and cleansing and repentance. And once we turn to the Lord for cleansing and repentance from sin, there will then be the manifestation of a ceasing of evil. As we think about this idea of ceasing from evil and doing, um, we remind that sincere worship is worship that is characterized by holiness. That's the point. Our lives ought to be characterized by holiness, not by sin. In the New Testament, Christians are where we called saints, right? Holy ones. Not just because we're, we're set apart for God, we are but also in the fact that we have the power in Christ to live lives of holiness, to live lives that are Christ-like. Now, not in perfection, but as a pattern of our lives. Holiness, however, is more than just the absence of sin. That's just, that's not, oh, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't do bad things, that that makes you holy. No, holiness also includes the presence of righteousness, righteous deeds. Ceasing to do evil must also coincide with the doing of good. And that's our second point here about sincere worship. Sincere worship manifests in defending the helpless. 
God gives this particular application because of Judah's, uh, Judah's practices. But he says to them with five quick commands, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These five actions display the heart of a true worshiper who loves God and others. In obedience to God's word, the worshiper of God will do good instead of evil. He will seek justice where there is injustice. She will reprove the oppressors. They will defend and speak up for the most helpless of society. Now, according to verse 23, the rulers and people of Judah did not do this. But we know in the law that God calls his people to defend the helpless. Now, this isn't just a social gospel. When we talk about helping orphans, defending the widows. Last week, church history class, we covered 19th century America. We saw in the 19th century America the rise of what's called the social gospel. That some Christians who sought to seek out social justice for the world and, and good for the world ended up neglecting the gospel. They forgot the gospel. They started leaving it out. And all they had was just social justice, social goods. They called that the social gospel. But that is no excuse for us to avoid social justice. Social justice whether it means defending orphans, widows, homeless, disabled, immigrants, or the unborn, is our responsibility as Christians. James 1.27 talks about pure and undefiled religion. What is it? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. God calls us to defend the helpless because that is what God does. That's what he does. God is one who defends the helpless. And what's more, it's a pic- this, when we do so, it's a picture of the gospel, right? Because who are the helpless? We are the helpless. All of us are helpless in our sin. All of us are dead in our sin. We can't do anything about it. And if we could, we could cry out. We could try to do things. We could try to buy help. But we are helpless against it. But God, who is rich in mercy and compassion, reaches out to help the helpless. And that's why we help the helpless. Because it's a picture of the gospel. As an application, and just even as we think through this, these truths of what sincere worship is, the worshipers of God, we are, we are salt and light in the world. Jesus calls us that, salt and light in the world. Our lives are to make a difference in this world. It's to show the truth. It's to, to make a difference, to cause people to think, oh, man, there's another way I can live except the way we live. Our lives are a display of the gospel. Yes, attending church is part of that. Showing that we fear God, that he deserves our, our praise and our worship and adoration, just as God is seeking true worshipers, and that we would invite all to come and worship God with us. But when we go into the world, loving our neighbors, we illustrate the compassionate and sacrificial love of God as we share this gospel with our words. That's why we must have sincere worship. Our lives must match up with our words. As we conclude then, we've, hopefully we've been impressed then on how much God despises and hates hypocritical worship. That we would not do the same. The people of Judah had fallen into the mistake of defining their religion by just simply their outward forms of worship. That because they showed up at church, they gave, they sung, they prayed, they heard, they greeted one another, they served, 
And therefore, they, they thought they were good. The rest of the week, they, they, just, they worshipped idols. They ignored the helpless. They did, not give, they did not show compassion. They did not show love. Let us not fall in the same danger. Let us then also ensure that our faith is defined by what it ought to be defined by. That what is religion is that what is true religion is ultimately begins with our cleansing and repentance in Christ. That we are Christians because of our relationship with Christ through faith in him. And if you have not yet, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, and if you're not but yet repented of sin and placed your faith in him, I invite you to do so. Because your sins condemn you, condemned all of us to an eternity in hell. And only through repentance, only through casting ourselves upon the mercy and the feet of God, can we find forgiveness of sins? Do we receive his righteousness, Christ's infinite righteousness on our behalf and forgiveness of sins? Let's make sure that we're defining our religion rightly by our faith in Christ, our relationship with Christ. Secondly, and the second application that we take home, let, our, let us ensure that our faith goes beyond outward form on Sundays, but it goes to extends to a life of holiness and compassionate love seen the rest of the days of the week, all seven days of the week, including Sundays. And may God cause this church to be a church of true worshipers who worship him sincerely in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, may you cause us to examine our lives. Oh, Father, we know that none of us are perfect. And even as we've studied this word, maybe we felt an inkling of conviction, Father, that there's some aspect of our life that is not yet right before you. Oh, Lord, cause us to repent. Cause us to confess our sins to you, asking for forgiveness because of Christ. Help us not to think that we're right with you just because we come to church and we go through the outward forms of our faith. But Lord, help us to regularly confess sins, to regularly depend upon you for forgiveness. To, Father, to depend upon you throughout our week to live lives of holiness that reflect a life that is bound up in Christ, the Holy One. And Father, we pray that our lives would be then used by you as we go forth into our world. May they not only hear what we say about the gospel, but may they also see the gospel in our lives as well. Father, no matter however that manifests in each of our lives, may you make it known to us. May you cause us to take action, guard us from laziness or guard us from unlovingness, but help us to be a people of love because you loved us first. So Lord, Help us to love you and to love our neighbors. And especially, Father, help us to find ways and look for ways to defend and help the helpless, just as you've done for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.